it's okay to not know things. And we actually will do a lot better work and we can admit it. And it sounds so simple, right? It sounds so simple, but man, can you just think of like a dozen applications right now where leaders who are bashing through the world, operating out of their own toxic shame, what could be different if they could say, you know, I was wrong. I don't really understand what's going on here, why I did that. Let's fix it. Whoa, what a different world we could be in. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast. Glad you are here. Please share this episode far and wide with someone in a leadership role. And as always, we would be grateful if you could leave us a positive review on iTunes. Hey, today I'm bringing back my co-host, Rob Holman. He's here. Hey, Rob. Hey, Marcel. Glad to be back as usual. Rob is, again, a global speaker, author, executive coach, and a great all-around guy and my good friend. So it's always an honor when you can join us on the show, Rob. Oh, my goodness. Anytime you and I get a conversation, whether it's formal, informal, live, or recorded, I'm just thankful to be with Marcel. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. The feeling is quite mutual. So, hey, I brought Rob because we're thinking that anytime we get together, is not only does do sparks fly because we have no idea what kind of things are going to come out of our mouths because this is unscripted, but more importantly, <laughs> it's we're here for you to help you make a better leader. And so what we have is actually a couple of things that we thought might help you to towards you know towards becoming a better leader. And the topic that we want to bring to your attention today is the topic of stewardship. And I'm I'm kind of let Rob kind of lay down a path for that. So set the stage for us. Well, when you think of stewardship, uh, Marcel, stewardship is one of those things that you know, maybe we've heard that word before. We've even used it on occasion, uh, whether it be in or outside of business and workplace environments. But stewardship is really uh, making sure to take care of uh, yourself, your team members, and your workplace environment. So I kind of like to group them or the bucket item is like personal, team, and organizational. And I know for the leaders listening out there, it makes a whole lot of sense, kind of that framework. But when I think of stewardship, I think more along the lines of inside so it works itself out. Even though I know that so many leaders are like, let's just dive right into the organizational aspect. Like how can I uh, be a good steward of my organization? If not that, they're thinking, okay, team, you know, I'm a leader of team members. So I want to be on point with my leadership and be a really good steward of those entrusted in my care. Not so fast with organizational and not so fast with team. Don't worry. We may even dive into those, but let's start with personal. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, when we embrace personal stewardship, care, about who we are, being the best version of ourselves, not as a titled CEO or COO or whatever, but just as a mere human being whose heart beats for people and longs to serve people effectively. 
when we understand and embrace um, being the best version of ourselves, this has everything to do with stewardship. I mean, more so when you think of of just personal stewardship. I mean, what comes to mind for you? For me, it's uh, I'm I have to be a good steward of resources, time, energy, and uh, and then taking care of my family as well. Yeah, you know, Marcel, I don't know if you are a dog owner. I used to be growing up, we used to have two German shepherds and a couple cats and stuff. Not so much right now because we have a family of five with three rambunctious kids. It's just a matter of time before we make our family more of a zoo, if you know what I mean. So the dogs are in the talks right now, but we have yet to get one. But I'm very familiar with dogs. And the reason why I bring them up, you're probably like, Rob, where are you going with this one? But stay with me. There's two kinds of dog owners. There's ones that when they're in the training process, okay, there's a type of dog owners that the dog is leading them as they go outside. And, you know, they're like holding onto the leash. The dog's like leading them about 10 paces ahead. And they're just trying to stay up with the dog. Now, mind you, they're trying to train the dog in this process. But then there are those dog owners that uh, through a little bit of training, they are actually leading the dog. Hmm. The dog is alongside, if not slightly behind and my point in this is, are we allowing our lives to lead us or are we leading our lives? Mm. And stewardship has everything to do, in my estimation, with being proactive, with being intentional, with being consistent about some things so that we can lead our lives and make ultimately the impact that we want to make on our team, on our organization, because it starts with us first. So what gets in the way of us becoming good stewards so we, we can become good leaders? We get stretched way too thin because <laughs> the average leader just wants to help. They want to serve. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, more demands, more responsibilities. And in the midst of saying yes, way too much. Because of a good heart, we do get stretched way too thin. We're on the verge of being burnout, if not already there. And all of a sudden now we're inundated and we have burdens that we were never meant to carry in the first place. So in steps, Marcel, what I believe is a very powerful word called boundaries. Yeah. If we want to be a good steward of who we are and who's been entrusted in our care, do we really understand uh, the boundaries? Do we have boundary markers in our own life? And I, I also believe that Demands will come. You know, the, the more we grow as a leader, there's only going to be increased demand on our time, not less. But it's our management of that time and of the resources and of the people in our midst that means the world. Yeah. And I, I also believe that, like, people come tugging on you, on me, on those listening in one, the fit in one of three buckets. One, either people are asking of a favor of us. It's an obligation, like you feel obligated to do something, or it's a genuine opportunity. And the only way, one of the only ways to truly sift through, like which bucket does this fall in? Should I do it or should I not? I believe that what really helps us sift through boundaries, letting, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, is understanding your unique priorities. Now, I know I've talked about this before, this priorities, but do we truly know our priorities in any given season? And if we do then, it'll help sift through whether or not we should take on a little bit more 
or not. And I always say this. You probably heard me say this, Marcel, before. When we say no to things that we ought not engage in based on our priorities, we get to say yes to the people and things that matter most. Do you agree with that? I mean, there's so many boundaries. Is it as important as I'm stating? Oh, man, uh, you have uh, touched on so many things. I could go in so many directions here. The one thought that I had was that um, I I heard somebody say that there's no such thing as time management anymore. It's 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 basically the ability to manage self and 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 it's self managing yourself has a lot to do with setting those priorities that will keep you on track with doing the things that matter the most during the day and because of our devices we are not doing so we're we're all over the place right and, and so what happens is you know there time is not time is not an issue there's lots of time and so people end up working 16 hours, 18 hours a day. Uh, and of course, you know, and we have these very unhealthy models for bu- billionaire models out there that are doing it. And so therefore, hey, they became billionaires. So therefore, it, it probably worked. It will work for me too. So we overwork and extend ourselves, but we're not being a good steward in all other areas of our lives, right? And so I'm thinking about boundaries in that sense of, what is it that is your primary calling in your life? And how and so when 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 it comes down to all of the short-term things that will lead to the promised land, if you will, to the you know, towards the your end goal, your big hag, um, then now you have to focus on those daily tasks, those short-term things that that you must do. They have to be aligned. Yeah. The, the 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 macro stuff has to be aligned with the micro stuff, right? To keep your sanity. And I think that's really exercising your boundaries and having the right priorities in place. Because there are people that are not wired, naturally wired, right. to stay on focus, uh, stay on task, keep the big picture in mind. And and eliminate distractions. No, they are like the you know the dog in the in the in the cartoon squirrel, right? And they're off to the races, right? And so there are people that are wired. They might be creative types, and uh, and and you know they might um, have its extreme ability to be to to be creative and, and, and genius and innovative and all that. Um, they are big picture thinkers, right? Uh, but they can't they can't fi- finish a project because they want to end up starting another one. And so they leave something behind because they're attracted to, you know, the other flashy uh, thing in front of them. So I think that my little rant is really about how to stay focused on what matters most. Uh, and and that means that you might be actually working less and not more, mm-hmm. which then frees you up. To spend yeah. time with more with, with family, with friends, and taking taking the dog out for a walk, you know, Marcel, um, boy, there there comes that dog again. Um, it's whether or not that dog's leading you or you're leading the dog, right? <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's it's uh, you got me thinking. I think focus is a huge part of what we're talking about. I can't help that there are so many leaders that are so distracted, so distracted, because we've talked about boundaries, but I want to keep on the table this whole area of focus. Um, 
you know, how do you, what are some things you've learned that help you focus better? Like at the end of the day, if we want to be really good stewards of who we are, what we're up to, whatever, you bring up like this, you know, focus aspect and people are, because more people are working out of home now than they ever have been or whatever. Are there any practical things that you've done or you are doing that help you remain laser focused? Well, Rob, this might be easier for you and me to answer because we have clearly defined uh, missions in in our business life and what we do, right? And so I try to simplify whatever doesn't serve my purpose, um, I have to cut it out of my life, right? And uh, and so and so for me, it's you know, it's it's I I simplify things down to if I'm going to write, I'm going to write around the things that that. Um, that I'm trying to send out to the world about servant leadership and, uh, you know, and this, the podcast, Love in Action, right? Um, and the book that I'm authoring, which is around the love principles of leadership as well. Um, and so and from the business side of things in my ink column, right, it's it's all part of my thought leadership, right, to, to kind of shape the thinking of the business world. Hey, if anything else doesn't fit into that criteria – and you may call me selfish, and that's okay. I can, I, I have my my skin is thick enough to handle that. But if it doesn't serve those pathways towards my purpose, I don't spend time on it. Plain and simple. Yeah, and you you bring up something that's very important in the midst of that, and what you just said is. Um, it's it's like you have tunnel vision in a good way. Sometimes we think of tunnel vision. Hold on, you need to get your you know head up and look at the big picture. Well, we, it's almost like a horse that's ready to break out of the gate at the Kentucky Derby where they got the blinders on. I mean, there's a reason why the horses, these race horses have blinders on, okay? When it's time to go and that gate opens, they start to move. Can you imagine if they didn't have the blinders, you know, the, the, the things on either side of the eyes, they'd be looking a little bit more of what this person's doing or this horse and this jockey's doing on the left and this horse and this jockey's doing on the right and wouldn't be as focused on who they are and the work that actually got them there. And all of a sudden they kick into gear. Why? Because they have their eye on the prize and they're not as easily distracted. So thank you for bringing that up. That's a tremendous gift that you just offered that it couldn't be more practical, couldn't be more timely for me and for every person listening today. So thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. And, you know, before we go to our uh, our main guest today, David Achata, we're going to get to David as our guest in a minute here. But uh, I-, I wanted to bring this down to, you know, not everybody has a purpose where they are speakers, authors, you know, executive coaches and have global platforms. OK, speak to the person that is just down in the trenches, you know, banging out code to to uh, create a new product and their developers or their graphic designers or their accountants or there may even be a teacher. Right. So, I mean, for them, how do they also make their priorities and focus sort of on the big picture? What how do they eliminate those distractions that don't serve not only who they are, but what they're doing? You know, because people choose a certain profession and a trade for a reason. This is what they want to do for a living, right? And then comes all the distractions, all the demands from outside influences, right? So how is it that that person, that individual contributor can also focus 
and have the boundaries they need to get work done and stay, you know, stay aligned with their mission. Yeah. Every person on the planet, whether someone has a global platform or just one person that looks to them as a leader, every person's made unique. Every person's been given what I believe, call it whatever you want, a purpose, a calling, a mission in life that only you can uniquely fulfill. So that individual that's in the trenches, kind of head down, I just need to get it done. I have certain things I need to see through. This could be the best time of your life to embrace who you are and your unique identity all over again. Because if we truly want to have more passion and purpose infused into what we do, regardless of what we do, it begins by embracing our unique identity. Well, you could say, Rob, I'm a leader. I'm in the trenches. I don't have time for that. I'm here to say, Marcel and I are here to say together, you're worth way too much and you're way too valuable as a human being not to discover or rediscover who you are all over again. Hmm. And what's that require? Put aside the work. Have some alone time. Go out for a walk. Go for a hike. Ride the bike. Have quiet time. You know, quiet times aren't meant for like five-year-olds that have been bad boys or girls here. Quiet times are meant for people in the trenches and influential leaders and impactful global leaders alike to actually Value yourself enough to take time to reflect, to be present, only to embrace who you are all over again, your strengths, your passions, your life milestones, the things that have helped shape you to become the person you are today, working on your current project. Mm. And in and through that exercise, in and through that experiential time, you begin embracing who you are all over again. As a natural result, purpose, your purpose can't help but find you. It's getting closer. It's knocking on your door. And all of a sudden, if you're involved in any mundane kind of work, going through the motions, rhythm and routine that's become some bit even mundane, all of a sudden, breath of fresh air will be infused into that work and you might just begin living and leading out of a place of purpose like never before. We need a mic drop sound effect here. Let me try this one. <laughs> Wait, did that work? I don't know if it did. Maybe. Hey, Marcel, maybe if we do it at the same time, should we try that? Ready? One, two, three. Two, three. I guess we'll find out. Know, but we're having a whole lot of fun doing it. <laughs> <laughs> he is Rob Holman, and he's going to be back because we're going to be doing this quite often where we get to banter back and forth and give you tools and strategies and tips on becoming a better leader. Hey, Rob, people want to get a hold of you. Where can they go? Best place to go is my personal website, robholman.com. Marcel, I got to say, as usual, my friend, I should say my brother from another mother, because we're so like-minded, so like-hearted. This has been a total joy and honor. I look forward to the next time already. Likewise. Hey, I'm coming back with our main guest today, author and executive coach, David Achata. Hang tight. We'll be right back. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You know, I got this leadership development course out right now. 
and it's getting fantastic reviews. So I want to tell you a little bit about it because it might be for you. It's called From Boss to Leader, and it teaches emerging leaders and managers those servant leadership skills, the, the everyday stuff that you need to inspire, engage, and motivate your team for high performance, you know, to get bottom line results. Now, we're not just taking anyone for this course. We want to make sure that you're truly invested in your growth as a servant leader. So if you'd like to explore whether this, this experience is really for you or your team of managers, visit my website right now, marcelschwantes.com, and click on training. So I'm really excited about our featured guest today because not only is he someone that I, I deeply respect and admire, He's a good friend who is also part of my local community here in the backwoods of Tennessee. I mean, how cool is this? Today's guest lives 90 seconds away from me. <laughs> and how we know this, because he has timed how long it takes to get from his driveway to my driveway. So <laughs> before I tell you who our guest is, uh, I have a question to set this up. As a leader, do you ever fear looking stupid? Now, I'll be honest here, because, you know, I, I'm raising my hand because sometimes, you know, when I'm coaching my executive clients, hey, the last thing I want is is to to look stupid in their eyes, right? It's that, that fear of the imposter syndrome that sometimes kicks in. But imagine, folks, if embracing what you don't know, whatever leadership role you're in, was the smartest thing that you could ever do. Now, think about that, because... Great leaders, they don't pretend to know it all. What sets them apart, and this is a quote from my guest, is not having all the right answers. It's learning to ask the right questions. I'm going to say that again. What sets good leaders apart is not having the right answers. It's learning to ask all the right questions. I think that when you master this rare practice of, of being curious and, you know, staying humble and, and open-minded to, to getting new information and asking all the right questions, folks, I think this is going to be the difference between success and failure. So my guest today is David Achata, and his new book is called Embrace What You Don't Know, A Stupid Guide to Smart Business Leadership. Love that book's title and even the, the subtitle even more. David Achata is an author, a speaker, a trainer, a facilitator, but most importantly, how I know him is that he is one of the best leadership coaches you will find anywhere because I have personally witnessed him coach over the years, and I'm honored to call him friend. And Dave, David now joins us. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Marcel. I did time it from my house to yours. I've got this old car I'm working on. One time I drove out in front of your house. I don't know if you know this, but I pulled in the driveway with this old car. I've got it's my 69 Mercury and I was sitting in your driveway revving the engine. It was late at night. It was like 830. I think you were already asleep. You never came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, Noel, that's my wife, that said something about that because I think it woke her up or maybe she was still up and she was like, what is going on in our driveway? It's like a... <laughs> The car show going on out there? Anyway. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, we have this tradition uh, where we kick off the um, 
the interview with with this question just to get listeners you know acquainted with you you ready i'm ready what's your story Mm, love it well um story maybe i'll start current and work backward a little bit yeah um, and then forward again to kind of bring us to the current moment um so i live uh, not far from you in east tennessee i'm originally from here have lived all over the country and um came back to this area six and a half years ago and um you know prior to moving back to this area actually worked as a pastor full-time for 10 years and then from there have been in the world of leadership development and um it's an interesting world that i've stumbled into and um i found that i brought um some of my crazy tumultuous story into it and that's been part of my you know life's work is trying to figure out you know how does my story how does my faith um connect with the business world and um so you know some of my backstory is um i was raised um out here in you know the craziness of east tennessee and um back in the late 70s my mother had moved out here to get some space from her first husband who she was separated and divorcing from he had bipolar disorder and um so she bought some property out here in the woods to try to get some peace and quiet my dad came along and um, they were in a relationship and her ex-husband wasn't happy about that. And there's some a lot of reasons behind this story, but I'll just summarize it. And um, so when my parents were um, in the early stages of relationship and my mother was pregnant with me, um, her ex-husband was um, setting the property on fire, setting cars on fire, killing the pets, spraying, uh, spray painting things on their, you know, double wide trailer out in the woods and uh, stealing things. And my mother was a nurse. She carried a gun with her during those years because she didn't know who it was and eventually found out who it was and got the, you know, the authorities involved and, and he stopped. But the interesting thing was that I was born into this type of environment. It's a real chaotic, crazy environment. And um, I think the byproduct of that was um, by the time I hit school age, I really struggled in school. I had um, uh, dyslexia and failed almost everything all the way through high school. And um, it was partially due to the fact that my home life was just not stable. And um, a lot of screaming and fighting. When I was a little toddler, my brother tried to stab my dad with a broomstick, went through my garage door. I grew up looking at it thinking, what is going on here? What is this world I'm in? And, um, you know, that crazy life and upbringing kind of led me to rebellion and, and near death by the time I was 17. And um, and some guys at local Christian college loved on me and um, helped me learn faith in God. And I ended up going to school to be a pastor. And um, about 10 years into it, I was like, you know, I feel like my calling is maybe get, becoming more broad. And um, our church was connected to a um, healthcare provider. And so I spent a lot of time with executive leaders. And those guys really encouraged me to get some training and some development in the world of coaching and uh, leadership coaching. And I started a business during those years and um have grappled for a number of years since then like how does my faith and my story connect into my uh, business world work and i finally finally i think starting to get some clarity on it which is the behind some of the book that i've 
uh, some of the stories in the book I, I wrote uh, that I want to share. Yeah, perfect segue, because I want to know now, bring us to this, okay, the, the big idea of the book, right? I, I know there's a lot of, lot of lessons coming from your upbringing, your childhood, the trauma is associated with it, but what? how does this book apply to most of us as leaders? Yeah, I think the the biggest problem I've seen over and over and over again is um, we're taught in our culture to value credentials. And um, so somebody's got a degree or they've got a position, we tend to just be quiet and say yes. Uh, but the problem with that is that um, just because a person is credentialed or has a great position doesn't mean they know everything. And um, so I, I wanted to write something that really helped demonstrate the value of learning to ask the right questions, even learning to question questions. And um, I think the operating system for how I came to the content was honestly my own struggles. I remember when I was a kid, I would have never survived school if I didn't ask questions because I just didn't understand. And so it's like learning to get in touch with what I didn't know has come out even now today in the business world with how I work with leaders. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to dive deeper into that whole idea of why is it that we don't ask questions as a leader? But let me pull back a little bit because I forgot about the subtitle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and and that is, you know, I mean, the sub, subtitle, A Stupid Guide to Smart Leadership. Why that subtitle? <laughs> yeah. So I I gave this book to one of my clients. So will you read this and give me some feedback? And uh, I, I want to give him credit because originally I defined stupidity in the book as not knowing something. And um, he, in, in the draft I'd given him, he actually gave me a little correction. He said, that's not stupidity. That's humility when you don't know something. He said, stupidity is actually when you pretend you know but you really don't and all the problems that creates. And so as I put that in there and start talking with my editor about it, we were like, wow, this idea could really become the subtext of the book is that it's not dumb. It's not stupid to not know something, but we, when we pretend people can pick up on it sometimes, sometimes they can't. But the point is, even if they don't pick up on it, we're creating problems based on guesses, the things that we don't know. And so stupidity is that, but it's also double. There's a double meaning behind it. I also use a stupid guide as a noun. And the noun is me, is the times <laughs> when, when I have actually thought I knew something and I didn't. And actually, I think the pathway to wisdom for myself has been to learn to admit, oh, actually, I don't know that. And I need to ask some questions and get some help and 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 learn from it. Wow. So many uh, paths we can take here, but I, I want to stick to the, the, the understanding that I totally agree with you that not enough leaders are asking um, the questions that they should be asking. They're, you know, it's, it's the telling versus asking approach. And we know this, we're coaches, right? And it's most leaders are telling and they're not stopping to ask the questions that can lead people to the path that they need to go on. So uh, bring us back to, I mean, what, and I think imposter syndrome is going to kick in here in a minute. Okay. But what are, what are the reasons why leaders stop asking and, and instead, you know, are primarily telling? <laughs> well, 
I honestly, Marcel, I think a lot of it has to do with our idolization in Western culture, especially in America, North America, uh, for, um, you know, the, the straight shooting, no nonsense, you know, cowboy type, you know, we love rugged Western individualism. Um, we love it when somebody comes in and acts so confident in the way that I kind of joke with my clients when I'm working with groups is I'll, I'll tell them, you know, that skill could probably help you survive the Oregon trail. Um, but it's not going to get you love or a hug or a healthy set of relationships or a healthy organization. And so I, I think that's what's underneath. I think it's a cultural blind spot that we have that we need to be tough and know everything. And if we don't, we're not going to survive. Yeah. Yeah. It's that old adage that to be a strong leader, you have to be charismatic. You have to be self-confident, which then leads to overconfidence. Uh, because now you're just uh, you're showing you more of your narcissistic side, right? You're coming from a place of ego instead of relationships. Um, but I, it, something that you said in the book struck me as well, and I'm paraphrasing you, but you said something to the effect of that um, when we hide the fact that we don't know the answers and try to come across as as if we do, um oh here it is it's actually this one is if we try to cover up being foolish or or being acting like we're coming across as foolish or stupid by doing that we are being even more foolish do you remember that uh-huh that's right well yeah i think that um it's foolish not only because it makes you look foolish and culturally speaking most people won't say that because you're in charge um but I think that it creates foolishness in our organizations. And I think this is true with any relationship. But since we're talking organizations, you know, your leader, your your leadership behavior multiplies. And so if people don't see you saying, man, I don't know, I need to really figure that one out. Or what do you think? Or why are you asking? Or something, you know, akin to that. If people around you don't see you doing that, then they won't do it. And the result is that their teams won't do it. And all of a sudden you got a massive organization where no one's talking and everyone's assuming. And I, I share a couple of examples in the book about all the disasters that can happen when people aren't collaborating and talking. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dive into um, chapter one and uh, pick out a specific part of the book. But let me first clear this for our listeners who are still kind of under trying to trying to get to the bottom line of what embracing um, what you don't know means. Well, clarify in your own words, David, what is that embracing what you don't know? Yeah. So embracing what you don't know has to do with understanding some basic categorical blind spots that most of us have, whether it's personally in our lives or secondarily in our leadership and third in our organizations. And so embracing you don't know is kind of a banner for a framework. And a framework is there's some basic questions in your life, leadership and organization that if you can learn to ask, you can find a lot of clarity. I want to quote you from chapter one of your book. This really stuck out for me. Okay. You write, when people aren't accustomed to looking inward, 
they turn into a particular kind of person, one who doesn't own problems or who, or who hasn't learned how to. These people certainly can't admit when they don't know something. With leaders, this creates a culture where no one else owns issues either. This perpetuates a palpable instability in our lives, in the ways we lead and in our organizations. I'm going to do the mic drop sound effect right here. <laughs> Talk to us a little more about this inability of us to look inward. And how does that impact us as leaders? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we as leaders, we want to we want to be the person that people look to for direction. And um and so I think when a leader is clear on their direction, people will fall in line. Um but what if the leader isn't 100% clear on it? You know, what happens? And what happens a lot of times is that back to stupidity, we pretend we we know and we don't and you know our culture especially in the business world is so accustomed to looking at a um hard goal that we can sometimes lose sight of the soft goals or the soft needs so organizationally speaking um you know we may have a toxic workplace and so we can aim for our hard goals all day long but if the engine that's going to get us there is not healthy, then we got to slow down and fix that. And then we'll hit our hard goals and we'll have the, the people with us. And that's good. But people don't want to look inward, I think, because they don't want to appear, appear stupid. And, you know, the thing about it is that um, what I touch on the book is I think what prevents us from doing that as leaders is our own shame. Yeah. Yeah. Great segue into that because you and I both agreed offline. This is something that we need to we need to break open, basically, because something that is rarely spoken about in leadership and business circles is the shame that we carry, which keeps us from embracing not knowing. Right, David? I mean, so let, let's uh, let's uncover some some stuff from from that chapter of the book. Um, so, yeah. Maybe, maybe um, let's start with what shame is. I mean, there's there's different kinds of shame. You talk about uh, shame as well as toxic shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this could take the whole. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and I mean, maybe we could. I mean, it's I'm I'm game to do it because it's really a fundamental piece that I think multiplies health in every system that we're helping leader in charge of, and even up to the outer reaches of our country and our world. And we, when we understand shame, we can spot it and know how to combat it. And um, I've had to do a lot of personal work on this. I actually just got back from a week-long intensive um, at a recovery center, looking into my own story, my own shame with other counselors, coaches, and teachers. It was a, a professional's intensive. And um, so it's really fresh in my mind. And so I think I think the way that I would summarize shame is um, shame is whenever we feel inadequate. Shame is the feeling that we're not enough. And you know, we tend to judge in our culture as if it's a good or a bad thing. And that's the problem. Because when we judge our emotions, they lose their power to help us. And so back to shame. I heard somebody say recently, we need just enough shame to not go to the grocery store naked. Um, you know, shame, shame has to do with us knowing our boundaries and our limits. 
But toxic shame is when it goes deep to our core and we say, I am not enough. I am a failure. And what happens is that we overcompensate for that by puffing out our chest, by talking louder, and by slamming down our credentials on the desk, like I mentioned a little bit in the book. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I love that you mentioned. Um, I don't know if we want to go actually to illustrate that with a real business account. And um, you tell me, is there, should we try to uncover what shame looks like in the real life, in the, in the real world with a real world, real life example? Yeah, I mean, it jumps ahead a little bit to, I think, something that we we might uh, touch on okay. more, but it kind of could connect some ideas for us. Okay. Um, one of my proudest moments in um, in working in the corporate world was actually years ago working with a, a corporate client that was a semiconductor company. And um, I asked them the reason why they existed. And... And a couple of people piped up and said, well, we exist to make money for our shareholders. And a couple of people sat in the corner and just rolled their eyes at it. And I thought, I didn't have these words back then, but looking back on it, my own ability to engage that could have been dictated by my own shame. Because I felt really inadequate in that moment to, to say, well, there's like disagreeing opinions here. But thankfully, it was a better moment. And I said, well, why don't we talk about that? And let's understand why some of you are rolling your eyes and why some of you are saying, you know, make money for our shareholders. And there's more to that story, which we can unpack here in a minute. But I think there are other examples, too. Um, there's a, a story I shared in, in the book of meeting a young man who was only in his early 20s. And he had a MBA, uh, like at 22, like super smart. And he was trying to raise venture capital to do some really big work in the world. No one would give him any money. Well, never mind the fact he'd never worked a job. He never had a girlfriend and he was living at home still with his mom. So why, what, like what drives a young man to get an MBA by the time he's 22? It'll sound rough, but you know, I'll just be honest but to have the balls to try to go out and get millions of dollars when he had never worked a job. And my question about that is, was shame at play? And I think it could have been because what he was trying to do was be further along in life than he really was. I love the ambition. I love the vision, but no one's giving him money. Why? It's because he hadn't worked a job yet, you know? And so how is shame at play there? It's like, well, well maybe at a young age, he really felt inadequate and he tried to overcompensate by getting all these credentials and education at a young age. And there's other stories I mentioned in the book too, but it's all about trying to overcome inadequacy by posturing yourself as something that you're not. Mm. Trying to overcome inadequacy by posturing yourself as something that you're not. As something that you're not. <clears throat> so, so it's and to deal with that is to really get to the root of the underlying shame that's keeping you from being your, you know, if I use a cliche, your best self or yeah, 
being somebody that is contributing at a high level. Because uh, and so I guess the, that begs the question: and how do we combat shame in this sense if it's holding us back mm-hmm. from connecting with others and having more productive relationships? I think a lot of it has to do with us learning to be open to our blind spots. The problem with blind spots is that no one tells you about them and you can't see them. Um, And the reason people aren't telling you about them is because they may or may not feel you're approachable. But if we can learn to create uh, a leadership style or or an environment where people can approach us, we can receive some feedback on those blind spots. And what I wanted to talk about in the first section of the book is how learning to address your own personal issues has to do with understanding what's, what age and stage you are at at life and really going back to say, is there something in my developmental operating system that could be derailing me here? And so the best way I can explain that, Marcel, is in my own life and in my own life, um, being raised in a volatile environment, um, it taught me to really be confident. And I was the child that people said, look how confident he is. And we tend to do that with kids. But the thing is, is what we don't realize many times is an overconfident and mature child is actually evidence of trauma because they've had to learn to step up and be bigger than they are in order to survive. And what happens is that we tend to take kids like that at a young age, or even adults like that, or even high performers like that. And we give them more and more responsibility because their ability to command or to perform. And what happened with me is that my whole life, I was getting put in charge of things before I was ready because he looked like he could do it. And so the result was whether it was in my relationships or in my church, or eventually I started my business somehow I was managing to score these massive contracts, really great clients. But the thing was underneath, you know what I felt like? Underneath, I felt like, you know, I was like a held captive 10-year-old boy listening to my dad scream at my mom. And so on the outside, I looked confident. But really what was happening deep under the hood was I had a crack you know, in the walls of my development. And so for me to find my own health, I've had to go back and say, all right, what's going on here with my own story? Why do I, why does my body do this? Why do I feel this way? And how do I address it so I can be healthy and more peaceful? And there's a term I talk about in the book, and it's this term overly responsible. And the idea behind being overly responsible, it's actually a term from adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. It's a 12-step program for kids from, you know, common backgrounds like that. And it doesn't mean that you can't do great work in the world. What it means is you're doing it with the emotional life of a child. And that has been some of my own personal work in the last few years to say, wait a minute, on the outside, I'm getting some success, but why is it on the inside? I feel like I'm going to break. Oh, I've got some stuff in my earlier phases of development I've got to go back and heal up from, because if I don't heal up from it, what I'm going to do is keep posturing myself in the world. And the problem with that is I've got a number of friends who've fallen down dead in their forties. Why? Well, it's because they're like me. They're really responsible. They can posture themselves, 
They can appear strong and confident and there for everybody else, but their emotional life can't bear it and their heart gives out and they just fall down dead. And so here I am in my mid forties and I'm like, this is sobering, man. The sobering thing, which is why I've had to step back from some things recently. I've had to step back because I'm like, is my heart going to blow out too? Because I push myself too hard. Why? It's posturing to appear that I'm something that I'm not. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean I'm not those things and I can't do those things. What it means is that if I haven't addressed my personal issues, my success, my ideas, my coaching, the consulting, all that stuff, it will lack a certain texture. And the texture that I'm talking about here in the book in stage one is a whole and healthy life and a healthy person. And I would rather multiply that than a lot of great ideas. Powerful, powerful, David. Okay. I want to make sure that we don't leave any of the shame stuff unturned. So, because I, w- I want to get to uh, chapter um, two of your book and and talk about vision and strategy, but is there anything else that that we need to know about toxic shame and how to avoid toxic shame. Yes. You mentioned getting to the root of what's causing our shame, addressing our blind spots and uh, you know, and basically looking, looking at our stuff, right. To be able to grow. Um, But something else that we're missing. Yeah. I think a big one is, um, you know, right now, our cultural voice on this is Brene Brown on vulnerability. And I love I love her stuff. Um, I think that her work is so important because it touches on the fact that um, there is a way out. And, you know, as I'm talking about toxic shame and how we posture ourselves, um, the way out of that is vulnerability. And vulnerability is um, is when we can ask questions. That's a vulnerable thing by nature because you don't know it's going to be answered. <laughs> so the question asking is vulnerable. But I think personally speaking, it has to do with sharing emotion and story. Psychologically speaking, what's been discovered is that attachments in our brains develop when we share stories with one another. So literally a space in my brain is built for your space and the same for you and me, but also when we share emotions. And so like some of the work that I do right now in the, excuse me, the corporate space is um, I work with a good friend of mine. His name is Sam McKee. He runs a company called Evergreen Leadership. And we're working together right now on a project with the Bridgestone, Bridgestone Corporation and one of the um, pieces we're working on with them, it's we've been training a couple thousand of their managers over the last couple of years, predominantly in feedback. And what we're trying to do there came out of you know some needs they had in their engagement scores. And Sam brought this to the table and really helped me understand it better. And it's um, how do you give feedback that includes emotion? And so it's one thing to say, when you did this, um, it, here's the problems it created, or here's the thing I want to affirm you about. But it's another thing to say when this happened, it made me feel ashamed, or it made me feel concerned, or it made me feel confused. Or on the positive end, more positive uh, or, or uh, recognition feedback would be it made me feel happy or proud. And so when we can share emotions like that, 
it actually draws humans together and it helps us psychologically speaking to develop trust. And so toxic shame actually pushes people apart because they're trying to survive and they think that uh, our relationships with one another are going to lead to our demise. So we protect ourselves, whereas vulnerability says, uh, here's my story or here's my feeling on it. And that's actually what draws us together, which makes us stronger. Yeah. I'm wondering how much of that ties into what what I'm about to ask you here. And this comes from chapter two. You've written about knowing your leadership orientation. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yeah, orientation Mm -hmm. is about uh, knowing what kind of leader am I? And again, they're, they're not better or worse, but practically speaking, we have a particular kind of style. And so what I talk about in that chapter is really understanding, first of all, fundamentally, what is leadership? Because we can talk about orientation, but we need to understand leadership first. And so leadership in simple terms, I I think it was Peter Drucker in there I quoted about, it's just influence. But the question is influence toward what? What are we influencing people toward? And so orientation is the what that we're influencing people toward. So we will influence people either toward um, tasks or relationships. That's one part of orientation, tasks or relationships. And then also we will influence people toward here thinking or their thinking, what is close and in front of me or what is far off. And so understanding this, this, these pieces about orientation help make up the matrix of who a leader is. So influence is about understanding your power, your unique power, which has to do with your own story and your voice, which we'll get to in a second, probably. But then like, how does it express itself in the world? And that's your orientation. So I share some stories in there about you would you would think that the higher somebody goes in an organization that they would understand their orientation, but it's not true. It's amazing to me how high up an organization some people can get, and they've never even taken, say, a disc assessment, a disc profile. They don't know their Myers-Briggs type. They may have been given some other massive 360 tool, but they don't know the basics. And, and this isn't everybody, but it's amazing how far some people can get in leadership and they don't have that. And so it's been fun helping people understand some of those basics, but also put it in these terms, help them understand what is my matrix and how does it um, uh, play itself out in the world. Yeah. David, um, you know, the the pandemic has really disrupted leadership in, in various ways, <clears throat> some for the good, some for the bad, from the, for the worse, really. Um, but we're rediscovering uh, since the pandemic hit, what it means to create stability in organizations uh, and, and and even create structure for more healthy relationships to happen, right? And addressing the mental health aspect of uh, of, of working in teams. Yeah. Um, and so in chapter three of your book, you start the chapter with this question. I'm going to quote you, how clear is your company on their reason for existing? Bam, right off the bat, that is a, that's a powerful question to frame the whole chapter because not everyone in a, in, in, not everyone in an executive team, I know you'll know this, maybe on the same page with their vision and strategy for what, you know, why they exist and why do, why they, they do things. Because sometimes an owner or that passes on 
um, the baton in a succession planning um, and the new owner takes over, the vision changes all of a sudden. And now people are in a in a state of flux and not really understanding their true identity, right? Mm, so yeah. talk us a bit about how clarity of vision changes everything when you actually nail that down, right? <clears throat> right. Yeah, some data um, Gallup found 60% of individual contributors and companies don't know their company's reason for existing. And um, I've heard it said that vision leaks. And so even if we feel like we're being clear about it, people forget. So we have to bring them back to that all the time. And um, I mentioned briefly uh, a second ago about this company, right? This company that had, we exist to make money for our shareholders and then other people in the room rolling their eyes. And honestly, that's one of my proudest moments. And, and it really showcases this idea of why it's important to be clear on your reason for existing. And so, you know, what happened in that particular instance was that we decided to clear, clear the agenda because the general manager in that company at the time, to his credit, said, guys, this is important. If we can't get this right, uh, we're going to be really misaligned on a lot of things. And so to his credit, we just cleared the agenda. And I remember it was winter in Boston overlooking uh, the the street and snow started falling. It's kind of kind of picturesque. So snow's falling, it's freezing outside. And we cleared the agenda and got out the flip charts. And we started writing on the flip charts, everybody's ideas on why the company existed. And we just couldn't get alignment. It took like two, it was like a two hour conversation slash argument. And eventually I said, all right, guys, let me maybe put it to you this way. At the time, I think my kids were like six years old and eight or nine. I said, uh, my, my eight-year-old daughter is going to ask me when I come home why I was gone for a week. Where was I at? What was I doing? Who are these people? What kind of company am I going to tell her I gave my time to? To make money for a company daughter that made money for shareholders is not going to mean anything to an eight-year-old. So help me explain it. And so we kept on digging in, you know, and really what they landed on, somebody said was, I think we exist to make the world safer. And all of a sudden, everybody just was silent. And that's how you know you've come on a reason for existing. It's like a holy moment. Like, what is our why that we would do? Even, even if we didn't have this, you know, this much money or this product. And in that particular instance, it was a semiconductor company that made a particular set of things and some of them went in military and some weapons and and what was really neat about us getting to that point as a group was that they asked me to give them some feedback on their strategic meetings and so a couple days later um, the question came up about if they should sell a particular product that went a particular weapon that would go to another country who you know they had some opportunities with and that general manager stood up and said, nope, we can't sell it to them. And everybody's like, well, we can make this much money. And he said, listen, it would not make the world safer. And that's our reason for existing. And whoa. And the interesting thing about it, that was almost 10 years ago now. That just this last year, that years ago, that company was acquired by another one. And I reconnected with somebody who still works within it. And he said, and even amidst the acquisition, 
that purpose still guides our company. Yes. I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, I want to cry. My life counted <laughs> for something. I, I made the world safer. <laughs> so that's why that's why it matters. Yeah. And and tying this in to this whole this whole idea of what we're talking about based on your book, your book, embracing the unknown, is because lots of executive teams, you might have the CEO say something about, you know, this is the way we're this is the direction we're headed. And you might get nods in in agreement in the room, but people are not speaking power to truth if it's not the direction they need to go, right? Because the CEO is the one that holds all the power. And so and so by being more vulnerable, and I think David, is to create the conditions necessary for you know psychological safety to be in the room, to pump the fear out of the room for people to, to allow people the freedom to say, yeah, Mr. CEO, um, th- that really doesn't define who we are. And so I'd like to push back on that and and have an open discussion. The answer still might be the same, but at least you're coming to the table for dialogue and d- debate your best ideas. Yeah, there's a book, Marcel, that really helped me understand how this can happen. And it's got to, the higher you are in an organization, you have to embody that kind of behavior or else it just is not going to um impact the cultural climate. And, you know, my, my certifying institution, um, the college of executive coaching, they set up a conversation with Edgar Schein, who's a well-known longtime business consultant. And he had at the time just written humble inquiry, which is the subtitle is the gentle art of asking instead of telling. And he talks in there about how our culture has a, uh, confusion about what humility is. They understand a positional humility, which is, he calls it basic. And that's, I'm in charge and you're not. So I'll just be quiet, you know, if you're in charge and I'll listen to you. So that's basic positional. He says there's an optional humility, which is, you know, you've accomplished something that I haven't. Uh, and so I, I may or may not choose to listen to you. And that's like, you remember years ago, there was a guy who got his arm stuck in a rock and he cut it off, you know, and, and made it out. Well, you know, I could choose to go on that guy's book tour and learn from him because I, I kind of wonder what it's like to cut your arm off and survive out in the wild. But, you know, maybe not, you know, may, may not be interested. And then there is um, the third and he calls it a here and now humility. And here and now humility is this idea that I am temporarily dependent on you. And so coming back to speaking truth to power, uh, it's not possible if you don't believe you're dependent on each other. And so that's that's why this whole concept of learning to embrace what you don't know and overcoming your own toxic shame is so important because if you can overcome it, oh my goodness, you could do so much better work. Yeah, yeah. David, what's your ultimate hope for people reading this book? <laughs> hmm, man. It's interesting, Marcel, we talked years ago about the subject of adding value. And um, I used to really struggle with writing because I didn't really see what it would give to me. And you're actually the one who helped me. I don't know if I ever told you this, but you're actually the one who helped me understand it's, it's actually just about adding value in the world. And I wanted to do some writing to really help myself figure out what purpose my story played in the world. And as I came down the home stretch and I was finishing up, I thought, man, you know, I really want people to get out of this. 
it's okay to not know things. And we actually will do a lot better work and we can admit it. And it sounds so simple, right? It sounds so simple, but man, can you just think of like a dozen applications right now where leaders who are bashing through the world, operating out of their own toxic shame, what could be different if they could say, you know, I was wrong. I don't really understand what's going on here. Why I did that? Let's fix it. Whoa, what a different world we could be in. Yeah. Or even before a gargantuan mistake is made, like you referenced in the book about the Boeing, how the engineers knew that there was a part that would not work in heat or whatever that, however mm-hmm. that goes, mm-hmm. but which led to the the explosion of the Challenger. In, um, yeah, that's in, right. You know, in 1986. To me, it's unthinkable how we could get to that point um, where just by speaking up, yeah, and and raising questions, yeah. I mean, think about it. Back to ultimate hope. What problems could be headed off at the pass if way earlier someone would have said, with the challengers, an example, which I touched on. Hey, this O ring can't survive these temperatures. It's it's not right for us to go forward with this. To think about this explosion, I remember being a kid in elementary school watching this explosion. I didn't know how simple, I mean, it's so, so confusing, but I remember being a kid and thinking, how on earth do you send a shuttle that far up into the sky and not know that it could explode? Even as a little kid, I was thinking that. And so like that kind of problem could be prevented if way earlier in the situation, somebody could say, I'm confused why we're doing this project based on a faulty O-ring. <laughs> so like so many other issues could be prevented if we could learn to embrace what we didn't understand earlier in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as leaders empowering those people down in the front lines, in this case, the engineers empower them to say, Hey, if you see something that doesn't gel with you, you're probably smarter than, than most of us are because you're engineered. <laughs> Tell us, right. Mm-hmm. And make it safe for them to do so. Yeah. Totally. So yeah. true. Oh, okay. So as we wind down here, David, I, I pose to you the leadership love question, which is our tradition on the show. So of all the, the ideas discussed, or maybe something we have not covered from your book, in your own words, how do we lead with love as leaders day in and day out? I think a lot of it has to do with us learning how to love ourselves. I know that for a long time, I have tried to organize the world in such a way to help myself feel more calm. And what I realize is that though I may have some influence in the world, the best work I can do is actually learning to love myself. And what that means is it's like a self-compassion question. Well, what's good for me right now? Do I need some time off? Do I need some time with my wife? What's good for me right now? I need to admit I don't like the direction this thing is going in my organization. That would be good for me right now. And I think that when we can learn to love ourselves, we speak up for ourselves. When we learn to speak up for ourselves, it's we we uh, we become more vulnerable, which draws people together. And I think that as we do that, back to leading with love, uh, other people can see how to do it. And suddenly we're surrounded by 
teams and an organization that can also do it too. Powerful. David, you've got another book coming and I just wanted to give you a little bit of a plug here. Tell us more about <laughs> it. Yeah. So this first one, I think I've started to refer to it to people as a book from my head. And I do tell a lot of heart stories, but the second one that's coming, I think is going to be more known as a book from my heart. In the second book, the working title right now is um, Executive Retreats for Busy Business Leaders. And the subtitle currently is You Can Go Away. And I wonder if the subtitle might be Listen to the Call to Go Away or Listening to the Call to Go Away. And um, I wrote this one to really speak to the question that many of us want to ignore and the question that many of us want to ignore as leaders is, um, is it safe for me to leave and to put my work down and to go be a healthy individual or to go work with a coach or a guide or a counselor of some kind, or to even uh, speaking to my closest relationships, is it safe for me to to put my all my tactical work down and go away with my team to do some real strategic work, which has to do with values and relationships. And then, and it's a book for my heart because it's about these disciplines of going away alone, going away with a guy, going away with your team and last going away with your family. And uh, that one seems out of left field to most people in a business book. But the reason I wrote it in there is because uh, what happens many times, the data shows, by the way, that the average manager or executive works 51 to 60 hours a week. So we're automatically already working an extra 20% more than everybody else. So the case I'm trying to make in the book is, what if you took that extra 20% you were already doing and you apply it to your own health, the, the health of um, your team and the health of your family? And so it's done. And um, it's being edited right now in its final phases. I'm actually finishing up the last edits this weekend. And um, the original idea, the original title was Executive Retreat. And the subtitle was Leaders, Please Go Away. Because we leaders cause a lot of problems when we never leave. And so it's a book about going away and how it's good for your heart. It's good for your health. It's good for your team. And it's good for your family. I love it. <clears throat> David, we bring it home with two questions as we do with every guest. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? Well, it's funny you mentioned tugging at my heart because literally my heart is what's tugging at me. Um, I mentioned earlier in our conversation about friends of mine who have fallen down dead because they pushed themselves too hard. And this last year, I literally have developed an ache in my chest. And that's one of the reasons I've been pulling away, getting some own personal work, going to retreats. And I've learned it just has a lot to do with some of the brokenness in my past that's been undealt with. And so I'm taking some time working on that. But the neat thing about it is that it's it's helping me learn to be a healthier leader, healthier husband, healthier dad, coach, all those things I do. And it's causing actually greater health in my marriage, as an example. And so doing a lot of deep breathing and trying to do uh, my time on my personal work 
And thankfully, it's it's helping the health of my heart. I'll probably be fine. A lot of people are like, it's probably just stress, man. Well, duh. But the question is, <laughs> why does it keep happening to me? And how can I sustain yeah. a life that feels like this? And so I've been doing a lot of personal work to address my own heart health. Yeah, yeah David, thanks for sharing that. Uh, and hey, finally, you get to close us out as all guests do. It's your turn to basically summarize this into a statement or a a, dry, a mic drop moment, whatever you want to inspire us with. You close us out. How about this one? It's safe and it's okay to be you in this world. You don't have to make up something, a version of yourself that doesn't exist. And if you feel like you can't be you and lead as yourself, your true, honest self with your own story, your own thoughts, emotions, and feelings, your own truth, if you can't do that in your current environment, it'd be better for you to get out of it and go find one that you can. It'd be better for the place where you're at because a better leader can come into place and be better for the one you're going to go to because you'll bring the real version of you and the real version of you is way more inspirational and way more influential than you could ever dream. There's so much truth to that statement. <laughs> um, the book, again, is called Embrace What You Don't Know, A Stupid Guide to Smart Business Leadership. David, I know I'm going to see you. You're 90 seconds away, and that's the, that's the good <laughs> news for me and you, but our listeners are not going to have that privilege. So point them in a few places that they can find out more about you, connect with you, maybe exchange messages with you. Yeah, you can find me through my website, which is achata, A-C-H-A-T-A, coaching.com. And uh, there's a contact form there. You can find some information on my books and uh, books currently are under the tools we use uh, tab. Or you can find me on Amazon. Some of the other things that I've written are there. I've got an author page, uh, again, David Achata. It's easy to remember. Think Horchata, Archuleta, Hakuna Matata, Achata. Like I've heard all of it. A-C-H-A-T-A. Find me on Amazon. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. Love to talk to you and I'll do my best to get back to you if you want to reach out. It's been a pleasure, friend. Thanks, Marcel. Hey, you can keep the conversation going on social media and comment on this episode with hashtag love in action podcast and also find us on youtube i will be sure that i will embed the video of this episode on my show notes and there you can find all of david's contact info as well and you can find all that on my website marcelschwantes.com and finally if you'd like to sponsor the show to help us spread the love in action movement globally you can reach me on my website or find me on linkedin Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.